You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I'm really excited to be interviewing Dr. Deborah Cottrell. She is a veterinarian here in Gainesville, where I live, at the Weston Animal Hospital. This was established in 1986, and she specializes in, of course, a large variety of animals, including dogs, cats, ferrets, rabbits, rodents, small marsupials, non-human primates, and other animals as well. But today, we're going to we're going to focus on talking to her about her specialty and her love and passion of working with local Florida bats. She is involved in bat rescue, rehabilitation, and education here in Gainesville and locally in Florida as well. But we have Dr. Cottrell here today to talk to us about bats. She specializes in rescuing, rehabilitating, and educating people in local Florida bats. So hello, Deborah. It's Hi. nice to see you. Thank you. You too. So uh, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me and talk about your love. And the goal is today to get more people excited about bats. Okay. That is my goal too. So with that being said, why don't you give me a little a bit about your background and how you fell in love with bats? Okay. Um, I graduated from Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine in 1980, um, having done all my undergrad at University of Texas, and moved to Florida in 1986 and opened this practice. When I first opened my practice, we sort of accidentally backed into caring for Florida bats because our building was originally located down the street next to a hardware store that had a cedar shingle roof. And in that cedar shingle roof were about 2,000 bats. Oh my goodness. And it was a maternity colony. And sometimes these babies fall out and end up on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And the employees of the hardware store would pick them up and bring them over and say, what do we do with these? And so... We ended up with them. So you learned what to do so with them. So we learned what to do with them, and it just grew from there. Wow. So a lot of your work recently is all because of this hardware store. Definitely. <laughs> little Ace Hardware Store. Isn't that funny how life works? Wow. Now tell me a little bit about the bat rehabilitation and the bat house on your property and what you do here for our, the local species of bats in Florida. Okay. 
when we were in our old building and we then bought this piece of property, we decided to put up a bat house. Mm-hmm. And that bat house went up before the building went up oh, by wow. almost two years. Um, and we actually did attract bats. And so we started with a small bat house that was already on the premises when we built the building. And when you say bat house, can you describe to the listeners what that means or how big it is? Well, the one we started with was a typical one that you can buy online from Bat Conservation International or Bat World Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. It held like about a thousand bats. Okay, and it just comes and you can it just comes it. in a box and you hang it up. Oh, um, cool. um, most of these places also have plans for how to build your own, but they're very labor intensive. Okay, so. If you're a, a bad beginner like myself, let's say. You probably would not want to try building on Okay, just get Amazon <laughs> to deliver it. Yes. <laughs> Very good, yes. But we, my husband and I have a lot of projects at home. We start, and then later on we uh, decide, okay, it was probably too much. Although I must say, for this past Valentine's Day, he did successfully build me a, a small native pollinator box to attract local bees and we're going to put in our garden so (laughs) but yeah a bad house would probably be too (laughs) it'd be a little too much so well that's really cool and now within this bat house what kind of bats are in there we have about 75 percent mexican free tails and about 25 percent evening bats okay bats are very cool about sharing quarters with other species they do very well yeah i guess i didn't know that that's really interesting and we're very lucky here, too, in Gainesville, Florida. I think I briefly mentioned in the last bat podcast that we did that we have a very... Is it the largest bat house on the University of Florida? It's the largest man-made bat house in the world. Wow. Yes. And recently I've been taking my boys there at, at dusk, and we watch all the... It's just an amazing show. Go it online is. if you... If, yeah. It's incredible. And check it out. It's, it's And because of that, as kind of a side note... Now, granted, I'm not exactly in the loop in the zoology department at UF, um, but one thing I, I have always wondered about is why there doesn't seem to be more research at UF oriented to bats that could use that bat house as a fantastic resource. They don't seem to really take advantage of it. Right. I'm yeah. kind of surprised because um, I used to work with that bat house all the time. With, okay. Um, when Ken Glover was the groundskeeper there, basically, and I worked with him a lot, we tried to figure out why so many baby bats were falling out of it at uh, one point. Okay. And I spent a lot of time there and found out that UF doesn't seem to really want a lot to do with it do as with far as research. research or anything. Hmm, it's probably an issue of funding, I know, just from being Maybe. Yeah. in the animal world in general, both in, um, I'm currently in uh, the domesticated a research world um, and agriculture there's they just keep f- cutting funding more and more, yeah, and more than with likely. Ex- mm-hmm. with exotics it's even it's tough there's even less money i would imagine but but hopefully they'll someday they'll uh get some research going on there or more well, research maybe this will put a bug in somebody's ear I <laughs> yeah, hope. there you go <laughs> there you go definitely and we're also lucky to live near uh the luby bat conservancy yes and they do a lot of research there. 
Luby is one of the leading bat research facilities in the world, and so many people don't even know it's here. I, I, to be honest, before I moved uh, from Michigan to Florida, uh, it, was a, it was a pleasant surprise when I yeah. learned about it and when we got to visit, and uh, it's just a really amazing facility. And for the listeners, would you mind just giving a brief description of what the Luby Bat Conservancy does? The Luby Bat Conservancy is... Uh, magnificent and that it is one of the leading world researchers in fruit bats of all kinds. They do not, however, have much of anything to do with the Florida native insectivorous bats. They deal almost exclusively with fruit bats and we really don't have those in the U.S. except for a specific few in the desert southwest um, that for example, pollinate the agave plant, so mm-hmm. it's because of bats we have tequila. I love that, right? Every time you drink a margarita, yes. if you love margaritas out there, like me and my friends, you can thank your local yes. fruit bats. Luby traditionally has not done anything with local insectivorous bats, but they're trying to change that. And they're trying to learn a lot about how to take care of them. Um, they currently have two of our bats that uh, are on loan to Mm -hmm. them permanently or long-term and they're learning to take care of and handle them. We have a small population in our reception area in a little habitat. We Mm -hmm. have three there now that I use for education. I can take them out and show them to people. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are bats that are uh, too injured to ever fly again. So most, yeah, most of them um, have had to have wing amputations because okay. the wings have been fractured. And so they have a job, mm-hmm. and which, they, is, a great which job. is education, and mm-hmm. that's what Luby hopes to use them for as well, and eventually to, I think, branch out a bit into local bats. Well, wonderful. And yeah, Luby does amazing research, and so hopefully they can start to explore some of the better ways to feed and care for these yep. insectivores so we can keep them under human care and, and learn more about them and help some of the more endangered populations. Agreed. And tequila, or tequila growers, um, agave growers are wising up to the fact that they need to help these bats out. And some of them are actually setting aside a few acres and percentages of their agave plants specifically for the bats to help the bats come um, and thrive. Well, they've realized it's it's economically beneficial for them to do that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and... With that being said, too, just to remind the listeners, the insectivores, the bats that are native to North America, they eat insects, as their name so suggests. Whereas a fruit bat, which are what are primarily researched in Luby, those are often what are considered the flying foxes. They're larger. They have uh, yes. the, the bigger the bigger face that looks like a German shepherd puppy. They look more puppyish, yeah. <laughs> They're super cute. And, so, and those are a lot of... Um, old world bats and we besides the ones known as sky puppies sky puppies oh i like that too yeah i'm learning lots today um and but yeah so really the only fruit bat endemic to north america is the one i believe it's called the long the lesser nose long tail bat i believe something like that (laughs) gotcha but let's just call it the margarita bat yeah the margarita (laughs) a very important one and so and that brings me to my next question that you can maybe help answer is 
with bats in North America and the bats here locally here in Florida being insectivores, they're really critical. They do a job. Clearly, the yes. tequila farmers have realized that. And this job is to eat insects. They eat massive amounts of insect pests. Um, the Mexican free-tail bat, which is the one that inhabits the UF house mm-hmm. exclusively. They okay. don't have any other kind of bats. Okay, so no commingling at UF. Not that I have seen gotcha. after several years of actually going up in that house and seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband actually found a skull from a yellow bat oh. in the UF bat house when we were up there working with it at one point. And that was the only time they've ever documented a non-free tail in that house. Interesting. Okay. Um, so the Mexican free tails do massive work for corn farmers. The corn ear moth, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Every spring, massive clouds of these moths travel across the south and go, I believe, to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And... They are predatored by the Mexican freetail bat. Okay. And the first time that this was ever documented was maybe five or six years ago by the National Weather Service, who viewed <laughs> a massive cloud. Like a UFO. They're like, what is going on? Yes, in South Texas. And they identified it finally as this cloud of moths. And wow. followed close behind it was a massive cloud of bats oh, that were these were this is we're talking ten thousand feet right altitude wow and that's the first time that it was ever documented all these massive amounts of bats feeding on these moths which are doing the farmers huge favors huge favors I some of my literature uh, researching bats I mean the numbers were astronomical it was in the billions of dollars yes, yes. that they help save farmers in pesticides and yes. insecticides and, and of course save us too and save the, the environment money. too right the sure. runoff and all of that and so i think that that's a, a really not as well-known fact that when people think about bats they don't always equate to them helping keep the the pest control population down and then right. other species of them like the fruit like the fruit bats or flying fox they pollinate they're yes and, oh yeah so there's uh, bats are really really good for the environment. The one maybe little myth that I would like to kind of address sure. uh, that a lot of people have, and they believe that oh I should put up a bat house because that'll keep my my mosquito population under control. I would love to say that's true, mm. but mosquitoes are not really bats' favorite meal. Okay. Moths, Darn it. Moths are their favorite. <laughs> Darn it. They'll eat mosquitoes if they're handy. Okay. But I don't know that necessarily I could say truthfully that putting a bat house up in your yard is going to make an impact in your mosquito population. Darn it. But I'll yeah. still give it a, I'll, I'll still perpetuate the myth and give it a try. I'll just cross my fingers because we have a boy, we seem to have a, a lot of mosquitoes in my backyard, that's for sure. And with with that, what are some other fun facts about the bats that you work with that our listeners may or may not know? Well, here's a recently documented fun fact. The Mexican freetail bat mm-hmm. is not only the highest flying of the bat species at they've been clocked at twenty thousand feet. That's really high. Yeah. And oh my they goodness. are also officially now the fastest 
flight powered animal on the planet. The Get only the only animal that's faster is a falcon and that's only in a dive. As far as powered flight, the Mexican freetails have been clocked at 99 miles an hour. How cool is that? Really cool. And we love science that they can even figure these fun yes. facts out for us. So. Yeah, so they fly high and fast. If you're seeing bats in your yard, in your neighborhood, flitting from tree to tree and hunting the lights in your yard and mm-hmm. things like that, those probably aren't free tails. Okay. Well, and to tell you, Deborah, I grew up in Michigan, a farm kid, and uh, one of my favorite childhood memories is on the side of the barn at my friend's house, we have, they had a, a bright light. And so at nighttime, uh, we would go out and... I probably don't recommend this to the listeners at home, but it helped me grow in my and become more of a naturalist and learn about animals. But we would go out to the light and we would take little pebbles and throw them up towards the light. And sure enough, it, it didn't happen always on the first try, but you have to be patient, which is a good thing to learn, I suppose, when you're a young child. The uh, bat species, and I at this point, I don't know off the top of my head in Michigan summers what oh, that sure. would be. <laughs> but... It would, and they, they would just dive bomb the, the the rock, which they thought was an insect, which is kind of a mean joke because um, insectivore bats use the echolocation right. to identify their prey. And so they were thinking this fast-moving rock was probably a juicy moth, yeah. <laughs> not a mosquito. But for me, it helped me as a young child be more fascinated with their beauty and their flight ability and this echo yeah i can see that you know fascinated with the echolocation and we never obviously you know, bats never got hurt they the rocks would hit the ground before they you know as they were dive, no, diving too for quick them. and smart for that <laughs> way too quick and smart but it helped it helped me me personally demystify some of the myths that bats are bad or scary sure. or this other folklore that gets perpetuated in our culture um i do remember being a young child in an old farmhouse, we would get bats occasionally in our attic come into our bedrooms or whatnot. And my mother was not a big fan of that. And bless her heart. And watching her kind of get super upset made me think, wow, or, you know, why are these guys so bad? And I was wondering then if you could comment on the, the fact that bats are known to carry rabies. And I do think that people having them either in their house or even in the wild, that is some of the fear that maybe makes them not like of course and and it is a reality and we have to accept that but the reality is also that if you have a bat pop any bat population less than 0.5 percent of bats at any given moment may have rabies oh that's a very 0.5 percent that's very low the problem is that the ones that you find on the ground that are down for some reason that increases the chance that they're Uh, sick so a higher percentage of down bats are going to be positive for rabies. So that kind of, when that animal gets tested and it gets reinforced that, oh yeah, this bat had rabies, then it reinforces the panic. And of course, it doesn't help to have cases like that recent one where the little boy died of rabies because his father didn't make him get shots, even though he knew the kid had been bitten by a bat. Right, if you could touch on that, I read mm-hmm. about that article, and I was, of course, appalled. Know, appalled. And so if somebody happened to be in the wild and was bit by a bat, you would want to immediately go to the doctors, of correct? Of course. And you could be treated, if you 
if it happened to be an infectious bat, one of the 0.5%, you could get treated. Um, well, the, the post-bite treatment consists of shots of globulin, okay. which is dosed according to weight, and you get it in the butt, and it doesn't feel great. Ouch, yeah, that's, um, that's painful. But then after that first injection, it's only three vaccines, like two weeks apart. The olden days, that, you, and you still hear this from journalists and in movies and on television shows, oh my God, 21 shots in the stomach if you get bitten by a rabbit animal. That hasn't been true since 1970. Gotcha. But the okay. myth is still out there. Right. So people are even more are scared. Fear, or maybe that's why they didn't maybe want to seek medical help yes, or whatnot. Because the little boy was scared of getting shots and he screamed and cried and the parents relented. Uh, and they let the little boy control his own destiny, which was obviously not a smart idea. Sure. And, but we can't, when we do hear about cases like that and then you know, it makes parents worry and it, and it probably, if they don't read the whole story or understand, like you said, the course of treatment, it may influence their dislike or fear of bats, right. which is right. kind of an unfair right. stereotype. And the other problem is that, um, and I'm probably going to get some flack from the health department people on this, although I have a great relationship with the local health department. We work fantastically together. I love them. But many times the health department also tends to, I think, exaggerate the danger of just a bat being in the same room. Okay. There is no way you are going to get rabies from breathing the same air as a bat. Well, and that was going to be my next follow-up question is, as a child growing up in the farmhouse in Michigan and the bat came in from the attic, it's yep. not going to bite me, right? I mean, it's... It's not going to go out of its way to. Right. Um, the, the big danger... And it, it, it makes perfect sense from a public health standpoint is if this bat is found in a house and it's been alone with a child mm -hmm. or alone with someone who's sleeping or drunk or somehow uh, maybe mentally disabled and not able to understand that they've been bitten mm -hmm. in, in some way, then yes, that makes perfect sense to be super cautious. Of course. But the idea that you can be bitten by a bat and not know it, unless you're drunk or sleeping or a child, is way out of line. You know. It's like stapling your finger. I've been bit by, I have not been bit by a bat, but I've been bit by enough critters to uh, know that you typically... You typically know <laughs> that you've been bitten. Oh my gosh, the bearded dragons are some of the worst. Iguanas and iguana bite. Yeah. Ooh, those hurt. But yeah, um, are one of our... Uh, more common species are local red bats. Mm -hmm. um, boy, you get bitten by them. It's like getting bit by a cat. Yes. Yes. It's, it hurts. You yeah. know it. Okay. Yeah. And now, do you have a favorite bat species? You've been working with bats for so many years. Is one? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it would have to be the Mexican free tail, just because they're not the cutest of the bats, but boy, they are the workhorse of the agricultural world. Sure, they have a job. They mm -hmm. have a job, and they do it really well, and they are the most common species of bat on the planet. They are found on every continent except Antarctica. How cool. Isn't that cool? Well, and I was reading, too, I'm not sure if it's a Mexican free tail, but certain species of insectivores, especially if they're... Um, pregnant or lactating females, they will eat up to their body weight oh, in yeah. insects yep. a night. Yeah. 
That's kind of like me on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and what's also cool about the pregnant females is um, they can actually have a, a fairly lengthy breeding season, mm-hmm. but they have uh, the ability to have co-timed uh, pregnancies developing. They can, I, I don't think anybody quite understands the mechanism at this point. We need more re- bat research. We need more research. They can time their pregnancies, and they do, so that all of the females in a colony will have their pups in the same month. All of the baby bats in Florida are born from the last week in May to the last week in June. That's so cool. Physiology is just amazing. Even though they may breed in January or February or March. Wow. So so basically, either... The they either store sperm or they. I believe the fertilized egg is actually stored in the uterus okay, until de- delayed implantation. Delayed implantation until then, the other bats are all. And on they the all same. know how to somehow talk to each other right. and say, "Okay, today's the day where we're okay. Stop that delayed implantation. Yep, and let some pheromone or something. Yeah, wow, this is so cool. See, now I have a new <laughs> idea for a postdoc. <laughs> That's amazing. And now with the local Florida bats, we um, in your colony, you've got the free tail and what was the other one? Evening. And the evening bats. There's several other, I think about 13 uh, endemic species to Florida. Yeah, something like around that. Around that. Yeah. With the ones that you have in your bat house, are they threatened or in danger or how is their conservation Ours are sales? not. Oh, good. Ours are not. And that's really good. Yeah. Um, and there is also uh, one of our clients... Uh, who owns a piece of property not far from here who has a large sinkhole on their property and it actually houses the largest colony of southeastern bats in the world in the sinkhole in the sinkhole now you're gonna have to explain that a little bit more well uh, my husband and i have both been down it and it it goes about 20 feet straight down Uh and then becomes horizontal and opens into a cave system and okay. he does this. The owner does not advertise where it is. It's fenced off. He doesn't want people to know where it is. Okay, um, because he's protecting them. And are they a population that's threatened or not yet? Not yet, but they may be at some point. Yeah. Okay. And I was reading up a little bit on the. Is it the bonnet? The bonneted bat. The, the bonneted, bat. bonneted bat. I've never seen one. No. Well, I believe it's probably because they're endangered, right? There's not, a and they're port- mostly, as far as I know, in South Florida. In South Florida, but I, I was reading up that they're definitely. Uh, we have uh, they're they've been enlisted in the Endangered Species Act, mm-hmm. and they are one of the first bat in many years to in North America to be listed. And so mm-hmm. it does seem like that researchers and uh, scientists and the federal government are starting to at least pay some attention yes. to that species of bat. Yes. Um, but like you said, too, without research, it's hard to know what the numbers are or well, how to help them rebound. The other problem with bat research is every species is a little different, just right. like all of us. Mm-hmm. And when you put in perspective the fact that on the entire planet, there are roughly 4,000 to 4,500 species of mammals. Right. Of those 4,500 species of mammals, 1,200 of them are bat species. Mm -hmm. So nearly one quarter of the animal species on Earth are bats. Yeah, about 20 to 25%. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. It's huge. 
especially for an animal that seems to be so misunderstood. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not talking about absolute numbers. We're talking sure. about different species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, yeah, no, it's really, it's really incredible. And, and they're very efficient at what they do and very good at it. And it would be, it would definitely be sad to see some of the ones that are either have more fragmented populations yeah. or haven't perhaps done as well. It'd be, it would be sad to see them go. And we talked a lot on the podcast about different pressures that endangered species of bats right. are facing throughout the world, habitat fragmentation, pollution. Um, but here in North America, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard, and if they haven't, there's a lot of bat species that are experiencing white-nosed... White-nosed syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And could you... Devastating. Right. Could you... Uh, could you give us a little update on yeah. a, um, a what is that of course the disease and how is it affecting the local bats here in Florida and what's being done about it? Well, the good news is it doesn't affect the local bats here in Florida. Okay, that um, is good news. I have never actually seen it, and the reason for that is that it's a fungus that requires very very cold conditions. So it's found in hibernacula, uh, northern climates where bats hibernate. What's a little scary is since this was first identified, what, 10, 12 years ago now, it has progressed across the United States alarmingly. It's not fast, but it's a march. And it has now progressed all the way across the United States to the West Coast and as far south as northern Alabama in some of those bat caves. And so when was the first case diagnosed or understood? It was first discovered in a cave in upstate New York in 2006. Oh, so not that long ago. Not that long ago. ago. Yep. And it has made a march across the United States and killed millions and millions of bats. Estimates are up to 7 million. In in some cave systems, it has wiped out 100% of the population. Oh, my goodness. And what is this fungus? What does it do exactly? Well, the main thing that it does, as as I understand it, is that it um, affects their ability to maintain their status of hibernation and they wake up and they wake up in the middle of winter where there's nothing to eat and they starve to death interesting okay wow and there i've read accounts of um bat biologists who had been working with particular cave systems for years doing various kinds of research and these guys just going coming out of caves crying and so where because are, the the whole population was dead a catastrophe wow i couldn't imagine that would be so hard to see that and so with this being around not that long or being recently discovered and obviously very very devastating are there any updates with uh, research being done to help prevent this or where are we at with this there's been disease? a lot of research done and a lot of bat rehabilitators um, discovered mm-hmm. on their own that they can treat individual bats okay. um, with antifungals and topical vinegar solutions and things like that um, and they can save individual bats but of course that doesn't affect the giant populations that we're talking about it doesn't make that much difference to them but um i think a lot of the original research started with antifungals Uh and recently it was discovered that 
the big weakness of this fungus is ultraviolet light. Interesting, okay. And so now they're experimenting with pulsed ultraviolet light in these cave systems. And of course, there probably will be unanticipated effects that could affect the bats in various ways. Sure. But right now, white nose is such a devastating disease that I think everybody's willing and ready to take that chance. To basically try anything. Wow. No, that's incredible. And so how far south does it come then? Uh, northern Alabama. Oh, so it's close. Where there oh. are cave systems in northern Alabama that are really cold. Okay. Um, and bats hibernate there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, I guess I didn't realize it had traveled that far south. Yeah, scary. It is scary. And now, in your opinion, why do you think we should help save some of these native species of bats for us here locally in Florida or for perhaps a listener in New York? Sure. Well, if just the idea that we should conserve endangered species isn't enough for you and you need concrete practical reasons, mm-hmm. insect control is, of course, the biggie. Mm-hmm. Um, without bats, we would be inundated with more agricultural pests. Yes, definitely. So beyond those two reasons, I mean, I think that's enough. Mm-hmm. So, and, and are there any other reasons that we should conserve bats in the wild, or can we just put them all some in zoos? A big reason that we have to keep our wild populations is that par- partially because all of these species are a little bit different. Okay. They all have slightly different nutritional requirements, and unfortunately, part of insectivorous bats' nutritional requirements have yet to really be researched effectively enough that we can keep zoo populations of insectivorous bats alive long term. Very interesting. So at your local zoo, it's probably not very likely that you're going to see a lot of... Highly unlikely that you're going to see insectivorous bats. bats. Or North American bats. Right. So once again with this the bonneted bat in Florida mm-hmm. we're not going to see that in a captive we can't just put them all in the zoos because no. they don't they won't survive we don't have enough research or understanding of how to feed them properly or take care of them because they're so highly specialized right and the the one person who does a good job of it uh, Amanda Lawler at Bat World Sanctuary in mm-hmm. Texas okay. um, and even she can't keep them alive as long as they live in the wild and wow. she does better than anybody I know. Better, right. And so in a perfect world, or maybe in a perfect world, we wouldn't even be having these conversations because all animals would be just totally safe and fine. The world would be right. very harmonious. Um, and for, for people listening, by the way, when I'm talking about keeping them alive in the, as long as they live in the wild, I'm talking about a long time. This is true. Yes, um, we covered this in the podcast. Yes. They live a long, long time. Long, long time. In the wild, uh, Mexican free tails can live 15 to 20 years. Yes, in fact, I, I came across a really cool, I love science facts, that for a mammal their size, they have the, the highest longevity. Yes, absolutely. So cool. And I'm sure a lot of that is related to their ability to not only hibernate, but they can do this thing called torpor, which even our southern bats here do in Florida when it's cold. Can you expand on torpor a little bit? Yeah, if it's really cold and there's no bugs out there flying around, 
they can just lower their body temperature and their heart rate and their respiration and their metabolism and just kind of go into a semi-chill consciousness state where they're using almost no calories Amazing. for short periods of time. What incredible physiology. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to protect these guys. They're just so cool. The more and more I learn about them. Um, now, I always like to ask our experts, what's something the average person can do? Uh, okay. Maybe you're not a total bat lover like yourself uh, or myself, but you you want to get involved or you want to learn more about the local bats in your neighborhood, whether you live in Michigan or you live in Florida. Right. Well, one of the things that I have done, and it's actually time to do it again, um, is to, you can reach out to local lawn and garden services if you're in anywhere in Florida. Okay. Um, and don't worry so much about aesthetics. If you have palm trees in your yard and the dead palm fronds fall down. We all have them. Mm -hmm. Or vertically, and they're just kind of hanging there looking brown, Mm -hmm. and you don't like them. Mm -hmm. Leave them alone until fall, because our yellow bats and red bats and seminole bats use those dead palm fronds as habitat. Interesting. And during the months of summer and early fall, when they have pups Uh that are just learning to fly, if you cut down those palm fronds, they fall out. We get injured moms and babies in every summer from lawn services where they've cut down the palm fronds and these bats fall out. And the, the lawn service guys are nice enough and care enough to worry about it. Right. They just didn't know. They just didn't know. And so these are the ones that they're still attached to the tree. They just hang down. Yes. And so they don't, yes. maybe for an, from an aesthetic point of view, they don't look beautiful. Right. But you're saying they serve this really critical importance. Their critical habitat for bats. Wow, interesting. So that's one thing you mm-hmm. can do. Um, and the other thing is, if you have bats in your building, um, be it house or office, contact a certified bat excluder who knows how to properly exclude the bats from the building without harming them. Okay. Um, at Florida Pest Control locally has certified bat excluders that are certified by Bat Conservation International. That's great. So I highly recommend them. Um, The other thing is help down bats, many of which are just young ones who get lost and confused and don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The important thing is, yes, you can pick them up and call us. Mm -hmm. All of us... Any rehabber who handles bats is vaccinated against rabies. Of course, rabies. yes, yeah. So when you pick them up, just make sure you pick them up with a glove or a towel and put them in a container. Do not touch them. Gotcha. I can't tell you how many times there have been angry parents, particularly, because they, their kid or themselves, the family, wanted to save a bat and they do the right thing, and they pick this bat up, but then they can't resist letting the child pet the bat. Oh, no. Oh, geez, yes. And then oh, I man. have to tell them, I'm sorry, this bat that you just drove two hours to save, I have to kill and sacrifice and test its brain for rabies now. Right, okay. So uh, don't let that happen. Yeah, don't let that happen. And now, if you did see a down bat and you were I don't know, either a nervous parent or a f- not willing to or afraid to pick it up 
what should somebody do? Should can they can we still call like uh, uh, pest services to help remove it, or or bat rehabilitator? Will they come out to your property? Well, sometimes, sometimes. but okay. you know, in our situation, it's tough. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. Right. So the best is just take a big blanket or a big, yeah. Some well, you guys don't have winter gloves down here. Like no, do but we have people have leather gardening gloves. Leather gardening gloves, exactly. Yeah. Yes, and then yeah. just put it in a box and yeah, just don't and and working historically in a lot of, in, in the zoos we always see we have to put signs up that say don't touch and don't feed the animals even right. though it should be pretty obvious so uh once again even though yes they are cute a lot of times just resist touching them and then you won't have to worry yeah uh about um and then you'll be and then you'll actually be helping the bat. then you will be helping mm-hmm. um and the last thing and i know this one sounds weird but you'd be surprised uh the how often this happens online on ebay and probably amazon i don't know for sure but i know on ebay for sure you can buy taxidermy bats that come from asia and the sellers claim if you talk to them and i have that oh we don't kill these bats we just find them dead and then we taxidermy them and we sell them and it helps support our family that's yeah right that's just not true right because bats, well, bodies, especially in a tropical climate, deteriorate really fast. You mm-hmm. don't just find dead bodies around that are suitable for taxidermy. Okay. So they're killing these bats mm-hmm. to sell them as taxidermy specimens. And the argument that you're helping their family, I guess that could be valid sure. to a point. So I suppose you have to weigh that. But just be aware Right. That they're killing these bats in order to do this because you want to put one in your living room. Right. Yeah. I mean, just maybe just buy a stuffed animal. Just or buy something. a stuffed one. Or right. And as far as you know, helping people in um, different countries, I I can totally get behind that. Make donations to organizations <laughs> that do that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, programs like Kiva, which do micro loans to people and help them start up their own businesses, so you're not just throwing charity money at them. Exactly. I'm a big believer in those. Oh, me too. Definitely. Or a lot of times we'll. Um, We'll give livestock to families. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. In Haiti, we've done that a lot before. So, um, and now, since you've been specializing in bats for so long and, and been around with white nose syndrome and then, of course, created this amazing bat house here in your property and become a, a specialist in our community, what inspires you to keep doing what you're doing? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I guess it's just the fact that it's a balancing act. Um, sometimes you get really frustrated because you can really be emotionally depressed by the badness you see around you, how sure. people treat animals I know. and each hard. other. <laughs> right. And we see it every day. You know, veterinarians are the ones that treat a lot of the fallout from that and that's that causes a lot of burnout oh yeah no i applaud you i i when i was determining what career trajectory i wanted to go down i shadowed a lot of vets filed them around especially equine vets and i just quickly realized for me that i i i love the animals but i didn't have the um the wherewithal and the internal strength to 
sometimes either take care of the either sick or neglected right. animals. Right. And it takes really special people like yourself to do that every day. Well, you have to be able to compartmentalize. Yeah. You have to. It's just like, um, how, in my, to my mind, how does someone be a pediatric oncologist? I don't know. You have to be able to compartmentalize that or right. you would go insane. Right. Yes. Um, and you're, you have to focus on the ones that you help the ones you save. The ones you save, and that's what I do. And I focus on the fact that I can save some of these animals and I can educate the people who want to help them. Right. And there is an amazing number of people who want to do that and do the right thing. Yes, there is. When you start looking around, that's one of the goals of this podcast is, of course, each week we discuss uh, different species and um, talk about physiology and biology what they eat how they breed we talk about their conservation whether they're endangered or not and sometimes it is kind of doom and gloom and and i don't and i'd like to of course we need to touch on that but i also love interviewing people like yourself and some of these organizations we've been able to talk to in just the short time that we've been doing the podcast and hearing about all people that are doing really positive things and sacrificing a lot to help save these species, to help educate other people. I mean, the fact that you sat down with me today and I've learned so much from you is just really inspiring me to keep helping these animals. It's not just us. It's, it's everyday people like the lady. Um, I guess it was about six weeks ago, a lady in Cedar key found a bat Mm -hmm. and she didn't even own a car. She had to, Find a neighbor who is willing to drive her an hour and a half here to bring the bat. And she did it. And she did it. Right. So, yeah, those feel-good stories, we got to get more of those out that help inspire people. The little old lady that lives an hour and a half, 60 miles away-ish, if she can get a bat here to help be rehabilitated, then we we all can do right by these animals. And so I... I can't wait to bring my kids here to come see your bat house one evening. Oh, it, it's great. It's fun. It is uh, for, for anybody listening locally in uh, the Gainesville and or uh, north central Florida area mm-hmm. at uh, West Animal. West End. West End Animal Hospital. There is a, an amazing bat house. We have a, uh, a new house that replaced our initial small one um, in 2015. Mm-hmm. And this house holds upwards of 15,000 bats. We wow, have that's a lot of bats. We think we have 7 to 8,000 right now, we estimate. And we actually in the summer can go up there and there will be people with vans with the back of the van open and kids sitting there watching the bats come out at dusk because you can get very close to them mm-hmm. in our retention pond here. Um, and they'll fly right over you. That's so cool. And then my last question, just thinking about Christmas presents, I can ask for being a bat house. Hint, honey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is there any, if you do have a bat house or for your bat house, for instance, is there any maintenance required to, to like clean them or? Not usually. Okay. Um, now they will require replacing every 15 to 
20 years, depending on the weather okay. in your area, because okay. the wood will deteriorate mm-hmm. at some point. And it's a kind of a catch-all problem because you can't use treated wood because that's not really good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you try and put things like screen on the wood, that traps guano and makes a mess and the wood rots. Um, so what they do currently is groove the slats of the wood. That's why it's so labor-intensive. Um, Because you have to make grooves that are roughly half to three quarters of an inch apart. Mm -hmm. And this particular house has, I think, 24 panels. Oh, wow. So that's a lot of grooving. (laughs) That's a lot of grooves. Well, wonderful. And now, if any of our listeners do have a follow-up question or perhaps uh, would like to contact you, do you have either a Facebook page or a website that... Yes, we have. We don't do a lot with the website, okay. um, and it provides basic information for mm-hmm. our clients. But Facebook is certainly more interactive for businesses. Okay. And yes, we and have how, a Facebook page. Okay, and what what is the name of the Facebook page? It's West End Animal Hospital, and okay. uh, West End is two words. Okay, wonderful. Well, Debbie, thank you so <laughs> much for talking to me today, and familiarizing me with the wonderful things that our local bats here can do in Florida and and all the really brave and courageous endeavors you've done in the past 20 or 30 years with bats. We all thank you. You are most welcome. 